Okay, welcome everybody. I think uh, the recording is going. I think Vin is out there somewhere in the world. I am out here. Where am I? There you are. There I am. So for those who are wondering what that um, what that amazing little blurb was, um, this actually, believe it or not, drummers, drummers right now kind of copy and do what they're told. It actually comes <laughs> from a completely innocent thing Vin was trying to explain about drummers, but I took it. I took the podcast audio. And I chopped out just that one little part of his sentence, and now it incriminates him forever. That makes me sound like a complete a-hole. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> what we all wish we could say out loud, but never had the best to. <laughs> so, um, so that's pretty good. How was everybody's uh, St. Patrick's Day? Did everybody uh, get up to good stuff? I played a, I played a gig with uh, the Aaron Harks Band which is a local rock band and we've done stuff together before and um well, did you, do you have a requisite like uh drunk people dancing around while you're playing yeah it's just annoying isn't it i mean the first one's funny and then after that it's just annoying i'm trying to find if there's a link to it but i can't find one that's cool. How big is the Albany Parade? Is that is that on the weekend? Yeah, Albany Parade is on a Saturday. It's pretty big. I mean, um, I don't know. I don't know how to compare it to other parades, but yeah, uh, yeah. I used to, I used to say Ashley's. I guess <laughs> did the St. Patty's Day pub thing. I, I did that years ago. I used to do that, like just a regular get hired by like a thousand bars and. You end up driving all over the state, you know, playing here, playing there, playing there. It gets uh, tiring after a while. <laughs> so I keep it low-key on St. Patty's Day these days. Yeah, I think I found the link to the video. Uh, oh, it's got privacy settings. Never mind. Oh, well, uh, someday maybe there'll be video. Let's see. Ashby said it was cold and rainy but fun. Five different pubs in one night. Good Lord, Ashby. No wonder yeah. you were late to class on Monday. <laughs> what about other people? What did you guys get up to? Give give us a quick summary of what you did. Ashby was admittedly a little bit groggy on Monday. New York City is always quite the scene. People are always getting like there's you know you, you can probably go anywhere that has an Irish name on the outside and find somebody playing in there, you know, on St. Patrick's Day. It's just like everybody marches in the parade and then they scatter to the five boroughs, <laughs> ended up crawling around and doing gigs here and there. Um, Ooh, Tom is saying something controversial. A piper's enthusiasm for St. Patrick's Day <laughs> is inversely proportional to his skill level and experience. Um, I think uh, I think that's I think that's a very good thesis for a paper. I think so. It would require some analysis and data gathering. It's on your kilt and out you go. <laughs> it's true. I mean, yeah. When we first start out, St. Patrick's Day is like the coolest thing. And then as we gather experience, it starts to get a little bit tiresome. I'm definitely with you there. But at the same time, it depends how you would define enthusiasm. Because 
if I can get paid 1500 bucks to do a bunch exactly. of gigs in one weekend, um, I'm going to be pretty enthusiastic um, regardless of my experience level. So, Absolutely, absolutely. And those are few and far between because, you know, it's like a, you know, it's a, it's a labor, it's a, it's a saturated labor market on St. Patrick's Day. So you can find just about anybody who can blow into a bag will be willing to work for peanuts. So it's hard to score those high paying gigs, you know, unless you're yeah. doing a show or something like that, you know. It's like full yeah, employment Mary, day for bagpipers. <laughs> Mary had a parade with her band on Saturday, two sessions at a local tavern Sunday. And a rehab facility on Monday. Excellent. Assisted care. That's always fun. I like playing for the old folks. I've done a couple of old age homes on a St. Patrick's Day or something like that. It's that's fun. They love you. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's sort of a it's a point of contention for pipers, isn't it? Because because there's guys like Ken out there. He just sat back, relaxed, drank a cup of coffee, and laughed at all the bands playing in Sub Zero. <laughs> Exactly. You know? And, uh, you know, Ken, I feel I feel for you, you know. You become jaded, uh, and you just like to see other pipers suffer. <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay. I mean, uh, you know, uh, what, yeah, I had a little gig I played. I had a little gig that I played, and it kept me, it kept me from being uh, like Ken, sitting around, um, you know, sitting around watching freezing cold pipe bands on TV. And then, uh, you know, so I, I wasn't quite on the Ken end of the spectrum, but I also wasn't fully on the Ashby end of the spectrum where I did five pubs in one night. I was just kind of, I did one thing. I had sort of, I paid tribute to um, St. Patrick. Uh, and then I went home. I think we had five guys for dinner. Like we had really greasy burgers. Excellent. That's required. It is yeah, I, used to, I, used to play, I used to play in, a, in my... Uh, the local school here, the kindergarten teacher always had her big St. Patty's Day thing where she'd have, uh, you know, pots of gold and leprechaun hunt and all that kind of stuff. And she had Irish dancers come in and I would come in and play for a while. Um, she used to do like a more elaborate show. Like she'd have like parents of students would come in and like play flute and other things like that, piano. It was kind of fun. I did that for a lot of years, actually. I did it for a good five or six that, years. That sound was, my, that sound was me know. dropping my Zoom Q2 on the ground. Not nice. Um, but uh, playing for kids is always fun too. Kids and old folks—they're like the most appreciative crowd ever. Drunk young people in a bar—I don't know, not so much. <laughs> I was, um, yeah, I was, I was disappointed. I mean, we were producing some really cool-sounding live music, and everybody was inside the club, like listening to you know top forty hits and grinding <laughs> with with each other and you know uh, shoving each other, and it was like really kind of a drag. You know, when people would rather listen to things they could listen to every day than something that they could probably never hear again. It's all very odd. Um, here's the last thing I would say about St. Patrick's Day. I was making this observation, which is Valentine's Day, Christmas, Easter, even birthdays. You know, people have become cynical about these holidays. You know, they're just hallmark holidays. They just exist for, you know, certain types of companies to make a quick buck. Yet... When it comes to dressing green and getting really, really trashed with all your friends, no one seems to complain. Have you noticed this? <laughs> exactly. St. Patrick's Day is a great holiday. There's no criticizing it. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Uh, I mean, uh, you know, but, but let's think about it. Valentine's Day, it's all about love, right? Yeah. It's all about people loving each other. Yet people criticize that and they avoid that holiday like the plague. Yet when it comes to like drinking and like, let's face it, two, like two out of every five people get in a fight. I'd say Patrick's Day. That's true. But when it comes to drinking and fighting, people are like, yes, this is the greatest holiday ever. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's, what, I mean, it's a little inclusive, too. It's not, you know, Valentine's Day is for, you know, romance, and you have to be a couple to do that. And people who are single kind of are left out, even though, you know, or you think of all these other holidays, there's always a reason. You know, I don't know. St. Patrick's Day includes everybody. As long as you put on a green hat and have cash in your pocket. You're, you can participate. <laughs> yeah. See, yeah. Nate, Nate uh, says he saw a lot of I won't celebrate St. Patrick's Day stuff on Facebook. Um, oh, really? Not sure, what, not sure what the backlash is. And, you know, I don't understand it either. I mean, everybody should want to drink until they can't it's, it's stand a right up. Of, it's a rite of spring, man. It's like, you know, the, the whole Bacchanal thing goes back to the Greeks. You know, this is the time of year you just sort of cut loose, you know. You sort of break open the casks that have been stewing all winter and, and have at it, you know. Where do you think Mardi Gras comes from? You know, St. Patrick's Day, it's all around the same time of year. It's like, this is like a, it's a rite of spring. It's like we're welcoming the new season, you know. What better way to do that with them with bagpipes? <laughs> yeah. And then what about, um, before we move on to topic of the day here, what about uh, March Madness? What are the, wh- who, who's going to be in the final four? I mean, we have to talk a little bit about this. Any four, final four. Vin, what do you, what yeah, are your I picks? I don't, I don't think I don't follow basketball. Sorry. Wow. I don't know. I am shocked. I know that's blasphemy. Jeez, I even have a bracket, and I couldn't tell you who's in my final four, Andrew. <laughs> you just pressed the auto fill, though. That was your problem. Yeah, and then I, then I tweaked some settings, but I still don't even remember what I put. Shame on you. Shame on you. Anyway, uh, I don't know. I think Syracuse is – I have three brackets. I think Syracuse, which is, of course, my team, uh, Syracuse is, I think, in the final four. You're talking four about basketball on larger screen because how do I minimize you look, look at my big stupid mug? No, that's okay because <laughs> uh, we're going to move on. I just wanted to make sure there weren't any uh, – oh, it's, see, here's Tony talking about women's basketball. Um, fine. Notre Dame and UConn. Yeah, yeah that sounds good to me. Let it ride, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> and Gary is Gary is especially Gary is especially cynical. The only common link between St. Patrick's Day and the Final Four is everybody getting drunk and picking fights. <laughs> well, that could be a similarity you could draw across a whole bunch of things. <laughs> yeah, I agree with Eric uh, that. Uh, See, I'm, I'm kind of with you. I think it's possible for Syracuse to make the Final Four, but it's also impossible to get your hopes up because they've been – they started off great in the season and then now they're less great. So, so anyway. Okay, good. Let's move on. Uh, let's move on to the topic of the day, which is piping rules and regulations. And what I thought we might talk a little bit about is um, what, what sort of rules and regulations exist for piping because um, some people won't know what they are. Believe me, some of you need a refresher as to what they are. Uh, if uh, just statistically, if there's 46 people out there, at least 40 of you 
uh, <clears throat> including myself, commit major rule, rule and regulation faux pas, uh, if that's the plural of faux pas. Faux pas. Anyway, uh, so so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about this. So, uh, what rules and regulations are there for pipe uh, for piping? I mean, the first one is. And, and I guess we're talking more, more about uh, competition rules and regulations. Yeah. So we're, mov we're moving on from the world of parades. We're talking about mm -hmm. competitions. Um, what are some of the key ones? What are some of the ones that don't really get followed and it really annoys you and so on and so forth? Uh, the first thing is you have, to be, you have to be registered somewhere in order to compete. Yes, which means which automatically puts you under the influence of whatever rules listed for the events that are sanctioned by that organization. Yeah. Um, and you don't have to be, you can go to contests that are outside of the jurisdiction of your pipe band association. Um, as long as you're registered in your home association. Right. And as long as you can abide by the rules of the association in which you're playing. So if you go to Canada, you have to play by their rules um, and vice versa even though you're registered with another association. You have to sort of, they require their two requirements or whatever other rules are there. You have to follow those rules as everyone else is. Yeah, let's see. Eric says you've got to compete in the grade that you're assigned. That's true. So, That's true. Um, so when you first sign up for an association, chances are that you'll be put in the entry level grade um, some people join later in their careers where they're actually quite accomplished pipers already and really quite good. It's actually pretty rare, though. Um, yeah. I remember um, I remember when... Some people drop it, though. Some people start getting the entry level and then stop competing for a long time and then come back, which is, yeah. happens a little more frequently, I think. And a lot of times, if that's the case, if you're drastically out of your grade level, they will reassign you. I've seen that a couple times. Um, it happens. Uh, sometimes they reassign you just because you're buddies with the uh, executive. Whoops, did I say that? Okay. Uh, let's <laughs> see. Um, yeah, and then the the next thing, and here's here's one not necessarily in order, uh, but Andrew brings up a really good point. So here's an interesting rule slash regulation that not a lot of people know about. Uh, but pretty much all of all of us, if you've done this any number of times, we've done this, which is we start the tune, it doesn't feel quite right, um, and then we try to start it again. So we're like, crap, we go the first couple of bars, and then we're like, oh, that wasn't right, and then we start it again. But that actually um, that actually is not legal and will, will um, result in a disqualification. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's written down per se, like, I think if you, it's sort of like a, a an unwritten rule. And there's a lot of them actually. Um, there's a lot if of you start, rules. Yeah, if you start, if you submit a tune, you know, and you start that tune, you're officially have begun your competition, you know, your performance, and and that's kind of the accepted sort of you know, policy rule. I don't know. So if you do start it and then stop, even if you've only played the first few notes, you know, you're officially done. <laughs> so, I think that one's actually written, but is it written? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think, it's been a long time since I've been through that, but I'm, I think that one is. Is it written in those words, though? Is like, I think usually the, the the wording typically runs around like, you know, the, the player must begin the tune they've submitted or something like that. You know, it's always like some generic, vague thing that, you know, the player must 
compete with this, you know, the tune they've submitted. Or, you know, and so if you're, so if you, in other words, if you begin marching in your march with another tune and stop, you've officially, you've officially started your competition and you're done. That's another unwritten rule. So it's like you, if you even, so you could be, if you, if you're smooth about it, you probably could roll it into your tuning routine <laughs> and then fake it, you know. Um, but usually you can't. Usually it's pretty clear you've begun and you screwed up. So. Yeah. When you take like the big first step. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then you don't take another one. Yeah. Sometimes you, you can realize. get away with it. Like you can pretend you had an itch on your leg. Or you can stumble a little, just to pretend you were just like sort of, you know, sort of tripping and sort of, you know, fumble yes. around a little bit, settle yourself again, and then off you go. Yeah. Oh, gee, the wind it blew me right over. <laughs> um, okay, good. What are some of the other unwritten rules? Here, another one is if the judge um, hears one of your drones go out, like shut off, um, that will often result in disqualification. Um, that's one of the. It's definitely the bass drone. And then, Definitely like, the sometimes if one of your tenors shuts off, every now and then the judge will give you the benef benefit of the doubt. Um, but generally speaking, that will result in disqualification as well. It, it, it's, and it's happened, too, and it happens quite easily when it's windy, right? It can happen. And suddenly you're realizing you're finished, and you, you might not even know it either. So you'll stop and then realize, you know, one of your tenors was not playing or something. Um, you know, but... Uh, yeah, I think I think in, in, when you're talking about like written rules, I'm not sure if it's definitely the base is written in there. Um, if that shuts off, you're you're done. Um, I'm not sure about a tenor though. I have to read more closely, but yeah, it's, and it's a, not an easy thing to detect. You know, if your if your tuning is good, um, the judge is maybe 15 feet away from you. You might not really yeah. might not really hear it. So absolutely, yeah, you're you're right about that. Um, or if you just simply forget to turn back on your center tenor, um, that's definitely happened before <laughs> to some people, <laughs> and you get away with that as long as you have a good cutoff, you know. Do you do you, do you do you pretend to tune it, or are you just sort of? Oh yeah, absolutely. You got to sort of twist it, and make sure, pretend it's on. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's. Uh, Jeffrey says I was not placed simply for losing my step in a march. Although the judge's comment was that he had not been looking at the time, I was playing quite well. It irked me that the judge didn't even place you. Well, was, um, was that? it's tough to say, you know, like a lot of times we jump to the conclusion that the judge might not have placed you for that reason. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, marching is marching is definitely written, but it's not a hard and fast rule that you have to do it a certain way. <laughs> you know, you just have to march during your march, and whether that means you march one way once, and then you march another way, like on the third part, and then you march like back again um, on the last part. There's no hard and fast rule, you know, written that says you need to go back and forth and counter march and all that kind of junk. So um, can I so can I march step, on the off? I don't, I don't know. Like, does it say left foot first? I don't know. It's, I don't think there's a hard and fast written rule. That. There's another one of those unwritten things where everyone agrees that, you know, your your downbeat is going to be on your left foot. Um, I think, Jeff, I, I think, Jeff, if that was the whole truth, uh, that the only reason you weren't placed was because you lost your step while marching, um, that would definitely be bad. Um, however, um, there might be more to it than that, so I'm not going to – yeah. Uh, I'm not going to choose sides on this one quite yet. 
if you lost your stuff, you might have maybe fumbled on the channel a little bit, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, or lost or, or lost the rhythm for a minute. Yeah. Like a lot of time when you lose your step, um, it's, a lot of time when you lose your step, it's all, it's also an indicator that you've sort of lost your rhythm and flow. So, uh, so that could and that that is uh, more than a good reason uh, to put you behind other players, right? So, so anyway, uh, but yeah. Um, it's interesting. Some judges are very strict, and they have their own little set of unwritten rules that they think need to happen, um, and well, if totally. they don't happen. And I, I don't think that's responsible. I think you should always give the benefit of the doubt to the player. So, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, like, if, I mean, like someone, for, for the longest time, it was, you know, it wasn't a written rule that you had to wear a hat of any kind. Um, it is now, but it's for a long time it wasn't. So, you know. But I, I know for a fact that many of the ju many judges would have a, this sort of personal rule that they hate when pipers don't wear a hat or something. You know? and, uh, yeah, so that definitely rule. rules against you, you know. That's proper. Isn't that doesn't that fall under proper bagpipe attire though? Maybe I don't know, but it's not you know especially when you're inside, you know indoors. There's certain decorum rules that you know deportment rules that sort of govern what headwear you're wearing whether you're indoors or outdoors versus. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. You know, so an argument can be made, I guess, one way or the other, but, uh, but I don't know. I don't know. What about tie, right? I don't know. Is tie part of Highland, Highland attire? I don't think so. It's just a decoration, something conventionally accepted as part of formal wear, not necessarily a required part of Highland dress, right? Yeah, but people who play without ties are like, what's the difference? Cover up those nasty-looking buttons, you know? <laughs> is it mandatory to wear a tie? If you have self-respect, the answer is yes. <laughs> uh, otherwise, well, it's not thank goodness, because I've forgotten my tie on a couple of occasions, you know? You sort of open up your bag and realize it's not there, and you're like, ah, oh, damn it, you know? And it's not mandatory, so thankfully, you know, you don't get docked for it. I, it's weird. I, I'm, like, I'm like the sloppiest guy ever. But I just hate when people don't wear ties. I don't know what it is. <laughs> See, no, it's like, so if you were judging, you'd be like, already the guy shows up without a tie, otherwise looks smashing, and he's he's not even getting a listen from you at that point. He's just no, you know. that's not true. See, you can't <laughs> let. See, you can't allow stuff like that. You can't allow stuff that's up for debate uh, get in the way of right. um, actually listening to what they are presenting musically. Because maybe they have here's what you know. Maybe they have a religious reason they don't wear a tie. <laughs> You know, like I don't want to, I don't want to infringe upon their religious beliefs um, at a bagpipe competition. That's not what I want to do. You know what I mean? Or maybe they have health. Maybe there's health risks for that particular. Like maybe it like presses on their thyroid. Or <laughs> something. A scar from an old wound or something when they were yeah not shaved in prison. <laughs> you just don't know. And then Sarah brings up the inevitable. I was wondering when this would come up. Even if you are a woman? Question mark. When uh, Sarah first started piping, the proper Highland dress for lads and lasses was different, and it still kind of is. So, mm -hmm. uh, so women pipers yeah. have have a wider range of what's acceptable. Um, I've seen I've seen um, long, like those long kilt skirt sort of things. What would you call those, Ben? Um, and just nice shoes and a nice skirt. Yeah. Um, and then and then women typically would not be required to wear a hat where men might be at a formal. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, yeah. At a formal event and so on and so forth. So, um, so that's good. Yeah. And then I've seen, I've seen many, many a, a, a Highland dancer slash piper back in the day compete solos after you know during the course of their Highland dancing as well. So they just like walk over, get their pipes going, and 
and compete in solo with their sort of Highland dress gear on, you know. So it's it's a technically Highland wear, so it's, it counts. Yeah, and I, and then trues. Some every now and then you see a piper show up in trues instead of a kilt. Oh yeah. I'm trying to find Glenn Brown. He's like the classic. Glenn Brown is example. famous for that, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's making. Chris Armstrong's been doing that. it too. Now he's got the, he's yeah, got the Scottish power thing going on. At the Metro Cup, there was there's two two trues, <laughs> or maybe it's four, but uh, yeah, um, there are two people wearing them. Very interesting. I'm trying to find them in trues, can't do it. The trues are of course kilted pants, right? Mm-hmm. And I certainly understand. It's uh, probably way more comfortable. True, no, they but it's got it's got that sort of bone of contention about it too, isn't it? It's like you know, the, you know, one of the Highland dances is called the Sean Trues, which is basically a dance about you know throwing off the trousers, which were required dress after the act of prescription. It's like no one could wear a kilt in public, so people wore tartan trues as a way of sort of thumbing their nose at at the at the at the rule at the law, right? So back when you know you have rules that certainly these rules are not going to mean certain death for us if we show up without our hat. To play competitions, but if we uh, showed up in a kilt in public back then, that would have been a bad thing, right? So people wore the trues, and they invented this dance after the act was repealed um, to sort of commemorate the tossing off of the trues. So you wear the tartan trousers. It's kind of a, I don't know, maybe in certain circles and certain mindsets, it's a little, it's a little contentious. You know, no one's going to be hanged for sedition these days, hopefully, but. <laughs> Hopefully not. Although, uh, who knows? Really. Uh, let's see. <laughs> but I would say, according to the rules as they stand for piping competition, I would think that the trues are certainly adequate Highland dress and fall within the purview of any rule in every association of the world, regardless of your opinion about them. Yeah. So Kurt does the salute. So that's another interesting thing. Um, you don't have to salute, but many pipers will do that. Uh, many pipers from a more military background will do that. I'm I am like a I'm very much a civilian piper. I have no, I have nothing. Yes. Um, I have very little affiliation with any sort of military aspects whatsoever. So I I wouldn't feel comfortable saluting, but many people do, and so um, that's very interesting. That's well, a whole regimental tradition uh, that comes back goes back to when piping was sort of regimented by the by the armies yeah. mainly, and that's where you so, sort of learned really, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So that became a a thing, much like the Glengarrys, right? You know, Glengarrys weren't the standard issue of the day; they were standard issue in the regiments, and everyone else wore you know Balmorals or some other headgear. Um, so it's only because of this regimental sort of aspect of of, of uh, dress have we sort of adopted it, you know. I mean, that was that goes back to the tunic and number one dress too, right, with the plaids and the tunics, and that's sort of faded out, and now everybody just wears vests and argyle jackets. Uh, I think we should bring back the feathered bonnets, broadswords, bring it all back. I'm, let's, I'm, let's take I think we should bring back the big feathered up. hackle myself. I'm, I think I want to start a trend. I'm going to put a big hackle on my gun, Gary. Yeah, I'm with you. Can mine? Can I have one that's like two feet high? Yeah. Off the, the big, top big of my hat. Peacock feathers sticking way up there. That's perfect. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that's 
Andrew's, Andrew's game is every that eighty percent of the judges will give you when you show up to the, the table on a game day with that on your head. <laughs> Eric says Rob Rab Wallace disagrees. About what what does Rab Wallace disagree about? Besides the quality of the Piper's Dojo Tutor. Oh, it's the trues. Okay. The Midwest Stewart says the Midwest Pipe Band Association requires a kilt. So it's like actually written in their in their rules. All right, fair enough. Yeah. And so Rab Wallace doesn't like trues? I think he wrote something in the Piping Times about uh, Glenn Brown's, um, yeah, about his appearance in uh, Trues. We call him Strath Black. <laughs> what does Strath yeah, Black mean? I think like, it refers to the whole. I think it, the whole idea. It's like, um, yeah. I mean, it's. It, 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 I mean, we're not Scottish here. This is the United States, so we don't have the same history and and upbringing that we have about this kind of thing, about the imagery and what it represents and. Yeah. You know what that means to people, other people. You know, um, so I think it's a little more palpable there than it is here. So I, I think it's for. I think the the uh, I don't know, probably more uh, definitely a, a separation of sort of a more loyalist kind of British Crown kind of approach to Scottish attire than it is to you know than Highlands attire. You know. It's ironic. I, I find I find it ironic because so so let, let me see if I get this straight. I'm I'm a, I'm a hack when it comes to this kind of thing. But the idea is that trues trues uh, represent you know uh, sort of op, you know oppression and you know that Glenn shouldn't be glorifying you know a symbol of uh, the oppression of the Scots. Is that like the everything in a nutshell? Vin is answering the phone. Do I have that right or not? Maybe I'm. Uh... I I think you're right about that. That's that's how I understand it. I just find it ironic that you know uh, that that could be someone's stance on truce, um and their stance on other things such as you know um, such as the streamlining of Pebrock interpretation uh, and you know rigidness of. Uh, you know, competitions and, the, you know, their stance on these things is positive. Like, it seems like uh, six to one, half a dozen of the other to me. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I would definitely promote, uh, you know, the whole idea, especially when you're playing in solo performance, you know. There's really no reason to wear Highland dress. Can we say that out loud? <laughs> you know, there's, as a musician, you know, and when people are coming to hear you play, um, the costuming, even though it's a part of the traditional sort of package of it all. Um, there's really no reason to do that if you don't want to. <laughs> you know, if you want to go up on stage in a tuxedo and play your bagpipes, you should be allowed to do that, you know, um, if, especially if everyone's there to hear the music, that. you know. I've often thought about that, and it's like, does, does American bagpiping culture necessarily, you know, require a kilt in order to – uh, you know, in order to properly represent what we do. Um, and, and I guess you could argue a variety of different ways. Like, I want to wear tri-corner hats. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Why not? Or colonial gear, right? Traditional colonial gear. That's a part of I'm our tradition. Not, right? I'm actually not telling the truth there. I much prefer <laughs> Glenn Gary. But, you know, you, but, but it makes a good point, right? If you're going to be sort of traditional, in quotes, 
you know, um, whose tradition are you sort of representing? I mean, obviously, we play a, a Scottish Highland instrument. You know, you want to sort of represent the culture of Scotland, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But this, you know, yeah, but yeah. hang on. I mean, when when exactly did the bagpipe, as we know it today, uh, you know, come to Scotland, become a, a common thing? It wasn't that long ago. Uh, and, and, and from that standpoint, it's like, you know, we had a, um, traditional dress by that point. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so, and the instrument had, had, I would guess, uh, see, this is where I don't know, but when did the c- instrument come to the United States? And at what point does it stop becoming, uh, uh, you know, a Scottish only instrument? Everyone's got their, their version of the bagpipes. Now, mm-hmm. Ours are, are copied off of that, but you know, at what point does it become an American um, or, or yeah. you know, Canadian or yeah, I mean, at the time when the, sort of, uh, the, the kilt and wearing of the kilt stuff like that, I mean, had always been like, especially after the act prescription was repealed, right? And I can't remember the exact year that happened, but um, there was this resurgence in all things Scottish, right? And it was a uh, you know Gaelic culture and sort of rescuing um, you know Gaeldom <laughs> from all corners, whether it's language, uh, literature, music. And all that thing, so it became a very fashionable thing to wear the kilt, you know, amongst the aristocracies, and um, you know, and that's where it became sort of a thing. And you know, so if you're going to have a piping competition and pipers going to gather, they're going to wear formal Scottish wear, and that's going to be enforced, you know. Um, and then you have the regiments. Like wearing, um, it's kind of like uh, wearing moccasins if you're uh, upper class American. You wear moccasins. <laughs> 1782. Thank you, Les. Thank you. So, yeah. you know, by that time, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so by 1782, people are are still playing pipes, really. I mean, contrary to popular belief, I guess. Um, but it wasn't a formalized thing until after that date, when it became more publicly acceptable to sort of dress in Highland wear. Um, but up to that point, people were dressing normally, and you see pictures from Cape Breton too, right? So around that time, same time, people are driving from Scotland and coming to Canada. And, the, uh, there's a lot of old, old pictures of, of Cape Breton pipers and musicians, and it's not a kilt to be seen, <laughs> you know, just no, dressed in farmwear. You know? Ken, Ken speculates, I would guess that bagpipes arrived in the U.S. shortly after the Highland Clearance. I, I would go to say that they must have arrived shortly before the Highland Clearance because mm-hmm. uh, one of the first, uh, you know, one of the big things that was happening leading up to the Highland Clearance was um, – you know, was the selling of um, Highland peasants uh, to the Americans, you know, in, into the American slave trade uh, before they figured out the whole African route. Um, a lot of people don't know that is a lot of the initial slaves in the United States were, uh, you know, peasants from uh, from the from so, Europe, really. Yeah, yeah from well, from the Highlands and from the uh, from Scandinavia, and then of course. Uh, from Ireland as well, and then and then it was sort of after that the, the clearances sort of be, I think they sort of became way more uh, ec- you know economically beneficial, politically uh, you know politically charged, and then so you know my my estimated guess would be as far as Scottish bagpipes are concerned, they were probably seen uh, before the, the end of the clearances. Yeah, it's an interesting historical study, though. I think you know it's a, not one that no one really thinks about. We sort of take it for granted um, that you know, as long as there have been Scottish here in the United States, there have been bagpipes. But it's not when is the first appearance of formal bagpiping in the United States? You know, like there's really no 
I can't recall an actual documented thing that I've actually read or seen that says like in this state or in this region there was you know the first Highland Games or the first bagpiping performance or first pipe band. Um, there are a lot of people that lay claim to that, but I don't know. Um, yeah, you're getting it right. Kinda, sounds like a great research project. Yeah, if, if you were indentured, would you not have a pipe? And then, like, my understanding of it is that's how they got these people on the ships. Is, didn't they say if you work for seven years, you, you'll be given land in the new world conceptually? Mm -hmm. Or yeah, am I just bad? These people – no, that's, that's true. And these people were not just – they brought stuff of their own. So uh, I would have – I would think that they would be – you know, they would have brought instruments. Uh, you know, maybe only small ones, but – um, they would have been bringing instruments. Uh, it, you know, th these things were uh, allowed by people, even slave owners, because it kept morale up. So to say that they would have been forbidden here to have instruments, I, I think that's incorrect. They would have had their no, instruments. Or yeah, well, they would have made them. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's, and there's plenty yeah, of examples in Cape Breton of similar, you know, people making pipes when they came to this continent. And, yeah, like I don't know when the first – why American Scots – Immigrants would not have done the same thing. I don't know. Oh, very interesting. So what does this have to do with piping rules and regulations again? No. Oh, yeah. Whether, they they whether come out of whole cloth, and we've woven them together like a, like a tartan, like our own version of some tartan, you know, and really kind of has about the same significance in this country. I don't know. <laughs> quilting, quilting has a lot of significance. Like, can I wear a, a, a pleated quilt? <laughs> okay. Um, okay, we digress, though. So uh, Gary sent me a private message, uh, and I think his point is good. Uh, many uh, people haven't really read their own pipe band bylaws. Um, and, of course, um, in all of the associations that I'm aware of, Highland Dress is, of course, uh, required, and teaching Scottish culture is written into the bylaws definitely mm -hmm. of the USPBA, and I think that's a lot of why we why we are sort of – mandated to wear the kilt and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so needless to say, I mean, we, we, can, we can speculate as to whether or not we should have to wear the kilt and all sorts of stuff and as to whether or not trues are acceptable wear. But at the end of the day, I think that's the underlying reason why, and, and uh, that ain't going to change anytime soon. Right, right. But and, and that said, I, you know, the, 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 rule, the rules of fashion will govern the day. Right now, everybody's wearing sort of vests. I never saw a vest years ago. You never saw a vest or a waistcoat. Now they're, everybody's got one, you know. Yeah. So these are like little sort of fashion trends that take place, which is why I want to – I want a big buckle on my gillies too. I want to do that. Big buckles and red hackle. There you go. You guys and your hackles, man. you got to take it easy with that. Um, <laughs> all right. How about um, – let's transition this conversation – what about appropriate uh, bagpiper etiquette? So when you go to the games, let's talk about etiquette. So things that aren't rules, but things we should uh, do in order to be considerate to others. Does anyone have any thoughts on that? Etiquette. Les says, avoid tuning near performers. You know, I was going to say you want to get as close to the performer as possible when you tune up. Um. <laughs> yeah, especially if you're at a radically different pitch than the performer. Yeah. That that would, of course, be uh, sarcasm because that's, of course, really, really difficult, right? Especially when you're on, 
you know, one of the things, here's one of the things that really bothers me is when I'm actually physically competing. It's one thing to have a big pool of people that are all getting their pipes warmed up. It's another thing to warm up too close to an actual competitive platform. Yeah. That's definitely something you need to work look out for. I always sort of scope out the spot. You have, and you have to, like, balance it, right? Because a lot of times you can't find a decent spot that's close enough for you to be seen by a steward. <laughs> you know, if the tables are all grouped close together and you, you sort of, you know, there's no good place to go, really, so you have to go far away. You know, but, yeah, definitely you need to have a distance between you and a, any judge sitting watching a pipe, piping performance, you know. I, one of the other rules that I – love to abide by but many people don't seem to abide by is walking around while people are performing like i hate that like when people walk near you like are walking around and sort of walk like right next to the judge's table walking by or you know move around like it's just I, it's just rude have <laughs> you, you ever had someone have you ever had someone go between you and the judge <laughs> that's never happened i had somebody walk their dog almost between me and the judge once yeah. but, that's uh, happened to me a couple of times um, it's usually someone. It's usually just a spectator, and they don't really. You can tell they're not entirely with it. But I've had some people just kind of like stumble through. One time, like they would just they just came up to the judge and started asking him about bagpipes. Like, how does that work? I'm in the middle of my like you know thumb variation singling, and uh, some guy has like gone over and started to you know ask the judge about how bagpipes work. Yeah, exactly. Or come over and talk to the steward during the performance. That's, you know, that's a natural thing to do, you know, if you're going to come over. Because the steward's typically sitting next to the judge when nothing else is happening. So you, you, people walk up to the steward to find out what's going on while you're performing. You know, that, I mean, it's kind of, just kind of bad etiquette, I think. You know, you should at least do it while they're tuning or wait till they're finished, you know. Cameron, uh, Cameron says you shouldn't bow ser servile-like at the end of your performance. Cameron, is a is a curtsy okay? Because that's what I've been doing. Uh, yeah, I, I, I just sort of, like a dancer, just hands on the hips. Yeah. I nod my head. Before. I nod my head and just say, I actually say thank you to the judge. Yes, I think a thank you is always required. Yeah, that's what I do. Um, a curtsying people sort of talked me out of that early in my career. Um, and then Nate, Nate, and uh, I forget who else did I miss. Uh, Nate and the person, and Jeffrey are pointing out that a lot of times the venues don't provide good enough separation between uh, things at the games, and it's all crammed in too tight. That is that drives me really crazy yeah. when the organizers of the event could care less about the competitors being able to hear themselves. Mm. Um, and just care more about sequestering all the piping in one area. Exactly. Um, I hate that. I, you know, and uh, the Altamont Games, our hometown games here in Albany, um, is is really disappointing to me in that way. I remember they used to have yeah. everything. It was like everything was placed like really well separated all over. Yeah, the, it was all uh, over the grounds once. Yeah. And and this is just my opinion, and I'm sure they have reasons for uh, making the changes that they made. Uh, but now, uh, for the last 10 years or so, it's moved into the mm. into like a parking lot. There's no a grass. Gravel parking lot, yeah. It's all gravel. And then like the, the platforms are placed like 50 feet apart, and it's just like, ugh. Yeah. It's really, <laughs> really hard to want to get your pipes yeah. out and do and, it, and that's one in particular I can think of that's really hard to find a place to tune and warm up uh, that's not – that's at least in sight of a steward, you know, near your platform. You just can't. You have to go away. You have to leave the entire area and go down that road into the buildings or something. And 
you know, you never, and so you have to make sure the steward knows where you are, you know, yeah. so they can come find you, you know, uh, and if you don't, you're like lost. The games that has gone in that direction either. Yeah. I mean, so, so many of the USPBA games are now, they, they've, they've yeah. changed to the Dust Bowl model. Yeah. Well, it's not, I don't think it's, you know, it's like, it's the games themselves that are, that are the issue here. It's like, they don't give a thought to the piping competitions and drumming competitions. They, they just sort of like think of it as another sort of collection of, of features that they just have to put somewhere. Um, they don't actually look at it as something that's people are doing and that requires certain requirements that have to be met. Um, I think it's just that thoughtlessness is pretty common. Um, Bruce, the board. Bruce says unqualified people are setting up unqualified people are setting up the solo competition areas. Yeah. Uh, that might be true, but the, you know, I, people that I know in our area are very qualified and they've been around this for a long time. I don't understand what has led to like the what has led to like the snowball approach to solo competing. Yeah. Like I, I don't understand it. Like what? There's nothing pleasant about that. Right? There's yeah. there's no privacy. There's no nook and cranny to tune up. The judges can't hear what you're doing. The, the competitor can't hear what you're doing. And then people still have to try and find a place to tune up. That makes the stewards more and more confused. You know, like, you know, I, I yeah, don't know. Now there's like pipers everywhere, and you don't know who's who and what's what. And you always got to, like, scramble around trying to talk to people. And, again, more movement, more walking around <laughs> while people are performing. You know. Yeah, see, Eric, I think that um, Eric says, is it the job of the association to impose new regulations? Um, I would certainly propose at least a 100-foot rule between all platforms. Yeah. You know, uh, that, I think there is a rule on the books that says 150 feet. Um, I'm yes. almost positive about that. Because I, yeah, because I ran into a problem, and it's not followed. Because um, I ran into a problem with the opposite, which was that um, – my competitions, it was, uh, I don't remember where now, probably for the better. Um, my competitions were uh, close to a half mile apart. And so there was absolutely no way for me to know um, whether, you know, somebody had scratched or two or three people had, you know, broken down and scratched. Um, I only thing I could go on at that point, because they were so far away, was the time. Um, you know, what time was I scheduled for? And so when I showed up at my next event and there was three people had scratched and broken down, they had closed the event already. It's like, yeah. well, that, that's, you know, it goes hand in hand here. So putting them all in one little cluster makes it more efficient in that you can run things faster, um, you can move things along quicker, and it's easier to find yeah. people. That must be you have to have much, much stronger organizational skills to have it set up so that the competitions are farther apart. That or just stick to your time zone, time frame. Right. You know, you got ten minutes. You're there or you're not. Period. Yeah, I think you hit the, hit the nail right head there. You need you need increased organizational skills, which yeah. means you need an increased amount of thinking applied to and these staff, kinds of events. And, yeah, and and, and it just and doesn't so that's the reason. And and it it stinks, but uh, I, I mean that's it's a symptom of games getting more popular and less staffed and, and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. I think, I think in the USPBA, what you have is uh, USPBA has that sort of hands-off approach where, you know, they've got score sheets and general rules, but then they leave it up to all the games to set it up. Something yeah, and they, like and they have a package of, of, of you know, of, of sort of a handbook, if you will, like that goes with the sanctioning package. So if you want to sanction the games, 
here's here's how to do it. You know, here's how to set one up. You know, and I think that's what Carl's referring to is like, you know, game, you know, events have to be 150 feet apart and all this stuff. So, but it's not like something that's enforced, and it's not something that you required to do if you want sanctioning ever again. It technically should be maybe, but um, it's it's really kind of these are you know here's how you could do it if you want to do this. You know, um, yeah, and it is hands off. It's kind of like they let the games do what they want, and if they show a, a level of carelessness that makes everybody unhappy, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, there's nothing yeah. you can really do about it. No. I just, you know, it's like if you think about it like if you think about it like a business, you know, like let's pretend let's pretend you're in the business of like you're actually trying to make money, let's say, on having pipe band competitions, which we know isn't really realistic. But if you were, how would you set up the venue? Would you set it up in such a way where people don't enjoy themselves and can't hear themselves? Of course you would. Mm-hmm. No one would ever come back and pay you money. Right? Yeah. Uh, yet, yet somehow, somehow we let that aspect of it slide in the USPBA. Yeah. It's kind of like flying an airplane these days. You know, we sort of put up with a lot, but we know we got to get on that plane because it's the best way to get to where we're going. And you know, you're willing to put up with like crunch knees and you know poor service and just a, a series of abusive things to happen to you all along the way. It's dehumanizing um, a thing, thing from start to finish. You know. But yeah, I, where's, I'm buying my plane ticket tomorrow. You know, I'm gonna do it again. You know, so. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, Jack, it's, that it's, is an amazing idea, by the way. The, those restaurants vibrating. Things. I like that. Yeah, I like that. That's perfect. You could have one per event, and then if That's you don't it. show up, if you don't show up to your steward within five minutes of that thing vibrating to check in with them. Uh, you're you're out. I love it. That's amazing. <laughs> that is great. That is cool. It's, I like that. It's great. I love it. Yeah. I, I would. You know. I, it, you know. I don't know how you would do this with multiple grades and and lots of people competing. But you know, at North Berwick, they have you know just the two sort of uh, tables going right. But it, the whole area is called is cordoned off. You know, you have to enter the rectangle to compete. And you, yeah. Yeah, as a spectator, you cannot, you know, cross that rectangle. And and everything's under a tent. You know, you're under a tent. They got, but they only have two judges going at that time on either ends of the rectangle. But it's kind of a cool model when you think about it. Like, you know, this sort of competing area where, you know, you sort I of enter, you know. There's something going on, though. Like, there is an un, there is an unrealistically high number of those barricade things in the U.K. Like, there, you know. <laughs> So they're giving them away? Probably, yeah, UK is probably like one hundredth of the land mass of the United States, yet they have the same number of those little metal barricade things in the country. they got to use them somehow. It's like a rat maze in a really good way. Like, they, they just have those things all over the place, man. Yeah, yeah. All over the place. Yeah, I, I think most of, the, most of the Scottish events are run that way. They have these little areas, and, uh, you know, I haven't been too many of them, but... Um, you know, they're, they're just, they have an area, you know, you have to enter to compete, you know, so, and, and people have to stand outside to watch and that's cool. You know, it sort of elevates the event, you know, it makes it something worth watching and makes it something worth sticking around for. Um, and it, and it shows the public that you care about what's happening, you know, really, um, which is kind of really what all of this sort of cluster effect in some of these games around here is have. It's like, this has this, um, sort of unintentional effect of telling people you really don't care about the pipe piping, you know? So what does that mean? You know? Yeah. Ellison brings up an excellent point. This is definitely etiquette related, uh, long winded 
uh, master of ceremonies that talk way too long during the mass bands. <laughs> yeah. Nothing is worse in the world than, than that. Yes. I can't agree with you more. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think you know a lot of a lot of this stuff is really sort of designed to you know you have to look the part. You know, right, we're dressed in Highland Highland dress. It's all traditional and everything. So you have to behave as if you're sort of formally doing something. So it means you know good mornings, thank yous, um, you know, looking proud when you're doing what you're doing and not sort of you know acting like a jerk, <laughs> you know, things like that. You know, I once I once saw a guy. This guy was this is years ago and and he was a bit of a nut job and uh, he went out there. I'm trying to, yeah, he went out there, he, he's warming up for his solos, and as he's warming up, he's just getting, he's just fidgeting, and he's like pulling out his clothes and stuff, and it's, it, it, when it came time for him to actually play, his shirt is out of his kilt, it's hanging down, like it's, you know, he's a mess, he's, he's, he's got no hat, bigger, bigger egregious violation right there, he's, you know, and he's just like pulling at it, and things, he's all disheveled, by the time he starts, he's all disheveled, and he's like probably pissed off the judge too, and uh, at that point, and he broke down. And it was, so it didn't matter, but it was, that's one of those things that, you know, you look at that and you're like, that's like, I, I wish I had a video camera to like, like put it and say, this is like a don't that should be put up on every, <laughs> you know, website, things like, just don't do this. Don't well, act uh, like that. You know? uh, Bridge of Allen, Bridge of Allen in 2011. Do you remember that, Ben? It was pouring rain. It was, pouring. It was like really, really raining, like pouring, like, like mud ball. And we go out there on the field. And we're, we're, we're marching to the line. It's, we're getting soaked. And then suddenly somebody says, stop. So the whole band stops. Right. And then there's, then there's a foot race. There, there's a foot race <laughs> going around the games. And so you see like eight or nine people run really fast by us. And then they, then they brought us in and then we're playing. And then there's like guns going off like 10 feet from me to start different foot races. And then it's like, and, and then to add to the whole thing, like people are slipping and falling in the mud as they're racing, and and it's just really, really awesome. Like really, really the way uh, yes. you want it to be. And add that, you know, and you'll add that to that the loudspeaker to broadcast over the entire park is yeah. right next to the band circle. <laughs> yeah. And then and then you have your loyal pipe band people who get really into it over there. So I wish I wish it was like that over here. But you, you have you have like fifty or so people that just Fight the the scene going on. I'm standing there like this. Yeah, like you're totally. Yeah. Like, ooh, ooh, the Wishing they could be closer. Right, right there. Yeah, it's yeah. so cool. It's that's. <laughs> I mean, you just really can't match it. You really can't, and it's really really cool. Ken's daughter dance at Bridge of Allen. Yeah, exactly. And they hang the speaker off the dance stage. Yeah. yeah. I remember. Oh yeah, I, I remember that too. When my when Emily danced there the first time, it was, it was several years ago and. Yeah, they had to cross the bike race. There was a bike race going on, so the dancers are crossing the the, was, the track to get the to the marshalling area, and they had to like stop and wait for all the bikes to go, and then they had to go, like, get run over. You know, it's weird. So I mean, I kind of like it though. Like, like it's it's kind of cool. Um, okay, longer comment here. Funny about people in wrong grade competing elsewhere and doesn't seem to be any vehicle by which members of ESPBA, for example, who go to compete in another part of the country, the results not seem to be reported back to the ESPBA. Yeah, well, they certainly wouldn't be calculated in the results. Yeah. Um, well, I think it refers to Eric's uh, comment earlier about, uh, you know, ESPBA is more worried about, you know, 
players playing in their other grades outside of their association or something like that in other places in the world, which, you know, I don't know why that should matter, but um, but it's an interesting point. You know, I, I mean, it's 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 the sort of sort of blind adherence to the rules when it comes to stuff like that, where you see their shortcomings. I think. You know, it's really, I mean, we can you talk about all these rules, you know, you got to wear a hat and blah, blah, But it's like once the rules are applied in some way for some weird sort of aspect that's not addressed in words <laughs> is when you really see how, how, how sort of short they fall to, to really sort of do their job, which is to govern sort of fully an experience that helps everybody, I guess, you know, or benefits everybody. Um, all right. Well, let's, uh, we could talk about this all day. It ended up being kind of an interesting discussion, so thanks, everybody, for uh, participating and typing in and stuff. Uh, but that should do it for today because people got to get back to their real lives. Um, <laughs> and so uh, thanks, guys. We will uh, post this up at podcast.dojouniversity.com. By the way, for everyone who uh, is wondering where it might be later, and we'll post that up there, and then we will see you next Wednesday. I think, Vince, you're going on a hiatus for a while, right? Going on a hiatus for a little bit, about four or five weeks, and I will be back in action after that. So we'll have to we'll, – we'll struggle to be interesting here for the next few weeks. Yeah, I may be back. Maybe I'll be back during uh, – the end of April, I may have a day or two. I can be back during not lunchtime. I guess it is. All right, guys. Sounds good. We'll see you later. All right. Have a good day.